and gentlemen, thank you for joining me for another episode of the Typical Septic Podcast. guys welcome back to the typical skeptic podcast i have a real treat for you guys tonight i have with me uh dennis stone who's the president of america stonehenge the site and also i have with me mark eddy of mark eddy productions mark arranged this uh meeting between me and him and dennis and uh is we're going to talk about america stonehenge and about the history and ancient history and it's going to be amazing, but let me read you a little bit more about my guest. Dennis Stone is the president of America Stonehenge. He graduated from Daniel Webster College in 1977 with a degree in aviation management and was a full-time commercial pilot for over 35 years before retirement in 2016. America Stonehenge was opened to the public in 1958 by Dennis's father, Robert Stone. Dennis has been involved with America Stonehenge for most of his life and always had a fascination for archaeology and archaeoastronomy. Since retiring, Dennis has found many serpentine walls and spirit windows throughout the site, among other new discoveries. He has taken numerous courses and traveled extensively to Asian sites in both the U.S. and internationally. His family includes his wife, Pat, his son, Kelsey, his daughter-in-law, Catherine. His hobbies include traveling, boating, and classic cars. And again, Mark Eddy is a podcast radio host and a researcher, and uh, he's the founder of Mark Eddy Productions. So I want to welcome both gentlemen to the show. Guys, thank you for coming on the show. How are you? I'm doing fine. Doing good. Yeah, thank you for having us on tonight. Hi, Mark. How are you doing? Oh, good. How are you, Dennis? I'm looking forward to this. Yeah, thank um, you very much for having me on this evening. Yeah, it's it's interesting. Mark, before we get into the main discussion, you said you wanted to address some points. If you if you want to go ahead, you can take the floor. Oh, okay. Uh, sure. Um, Dennis, when... The site was built. It, uh, you know, the stone chambers, the alignments were um, erected. Uh, the hill was pretty much a peninsula. What was the role of, uh, like, water? At that time, uh, a mountain top setting or a hilltop setting, um, the geography seemed like it uh, played some kind of role in the choice of why America Stonehenge was built on that site. Can you give us any insights into? what the people may have been thinking. Yeah, I mean, that's a really good point, Mark. Um, you know, why did they choose this particular hill? We are located in southern New Hampshire, about 40 miles north of Boston, and about 20 miles, statute miles, from the Atlantic Ocean. Uh, the Merrimack River, one of the larger rivers in New England, does come up about uh, a little bit more than five miles south of here, and one of the tributaries of the Merrimack River comes up on the west side of the hill. 
uh, on the east side of the hill, it's swampland, ponds, and brooks today. And yeah, we're very, very interested in what did the land look like uh, going back in time. In the time period, we're kind of interested in as about 4,000 years ago. And we've had a number of different research that, searches that have studied that. One in particular uh, was a professor at Harvard University. He was actually in the uh, undergraduate school of architecture and he built buildings around the world, including uh, ones we visited over in, uh, uh, in Greece. Uh, but in any event, um, he was interested in the architecture of the site, but he got very, very much involved with water levels back uh, starting around 19, I'd say 1998, roughly. Uh, he passed away just a couple of years ago, unfortunately, but he was working with the USGS, the United States Geological Service in Pembroke, New Hampshire. It's about 25 miles north of here, not too far from our state's capital of Concord. And they, uh, at that time, uh, it was the USGS for Vermont and New Hampshire. It may still be. Um, and also our archaeologist that started with us in 1989, she was a president of the New Hampshire Archaeological Society. And her husband was a doctor of geology at Tufts University for over 30 years. So he was a great he was a great geological asset in helping with the geology. And of course, she was very good with the archaeology, and they made a nice team. Unfortunately, though, he passed away uh, about 25 years ago after his wife had been working here for a number of years. And we asked him for some information, of course, to so the USGS of Pembroke, getting information about going back in time, how did this area look? You know, the topography of it, you know, were there trees, you know, what were the water levels? Where were the rivers running at that time? Uh, it is thought perhaps going back to that time that the site was more surrounded with water than it is today, as you mentioned, more of a, perhaps more of a peninsula. And the uh, areas on the east side where the brooks, ponds and marshes and there's some swamps there are today, probably that area has silted in over the years and also, once the glaciers melted, there was almost a mile of ice on top of us at the last glacial maximum, approximately 19,000 years ago. And once that weight was gone and the ice turned into water and flowed away, because that raised the rivers and everything, um, the land started rebounding. When you have a mile of ice on top of the land, it does compress it down. And they estimate anywhere from a quarter to a half a mile in some areas. And this particular hill, we're not really sure, maybe a quarter of a mile, half a mile, perhaps. And ever since then, the, we've had earthquakes and Northeastern Massachusetts does have quite a few earthquakes every year. Uh, it's on TV locally. And we do have a, a com computer printout that goes back, um, back into the uh, late 1600s of epicenters and magnitudes. And that's before that equipment was actually designed. So they must have done estimates on magnitude and epicenters going back in this area. And in 1727, there was a massive earthquake that caused all sorts of damage and destruction in uh, some farms around here, uh, you know, they had candles or kerosene lamps, I guess. Uh, fires were started and sand came out of the ground, rivers flowed backwards and everything. So the area has changed somewhat over the time, even in the recorded time period that Europeans came over in the last few hundred years. Uh, the hill is about 360 feet above sea level. It's not the highest hill uh, in the area. It's one of the higher hills, but the hills around us actually are about a a little bit taller than ours. And they're several miles away. And for astronomical purposes, when the sun rises and sets, they're looking at about a half a degree uplook. And this was found during the survey work that started in 1973, uh, phase one up to 1977. 
And the surveyor was, you know, looking at the horizon and shooting that too. And it was about a half a degree. It makes for a better sunrise, sunset, moonrise, and moonset, and also for star alignments, particularly stars, uh, because they're very dim. When they when they're near the horizon, they extinguish due to the atmosphere absorbing the starlight, basically. So Cirrus, Aldebaran, and Rigel, I think, are the ones that are the most brightest, and they will get close to the horizon. Other stars stars will fade when they're when they're you know when they're setting, and during the morning. Uh, well, at night when the stars are rising in the east, uh, they don't rise until they're probably at least a half a degree or more upward. Uh, so we're in the middle of a bowl and the rim is the horizon and the horizon goes up and down kind of like the back of a serpent, if you will. And they took advantage of that for some of the alignments because of the notches and peaks, just like they did in Europe. The stones were aligned with a peak or a notch several mile distance. So you're standing at what we call a backsite and we have that on the hill it was a current, two cairns actually. So you stood there, just like a gun site. You need your foresight and backsight. The foresight would be the stone, and it's a monolith. And they generally, for the most part, look like arrowheads stood up. And then behind that, in the background, you will see a notch in the horizon or a dip. And they took advantage of those. And so the moon, a sun, or perhaps a star will actually line up with all of those at once during the rising or setting. It's pretty cool. But I think maybe the site might have been more of a peninsula as you started out talking about. I have a question. Do you have any idea, or are you getting closer to who you think might have built it? Like, I, I, I saw that on the website, and I, I remember watching with Scott Walter on America on Earth, and he thought that there was Phoenician writing, and I think you have that even on your website, that there's some Phoenician writing. Who, who do you think could have possibly built this? So that's a million-dollar question. Uh, the research began in 1937, uh, and it continues to this day. Uh, back in those days, they only knew of a, maybe a handful of sites in the Northeast. Today, we have about 800 sites that might be related to the site, the, si the, uh, the style, the type of structures, you know, the similarity of constructions from Quebec all the way down to Virginia. And they number about 800 different sites. And the site can be like ours, 106 acres. It could be one chamber like in Wyndham, New Hampshire, or it can be North Stonington, Connecticut with 8,000 features very, very similar to what we have here, over 35,000 acres. So that's considered one site also. So it might have been a, a larger, you know, uh, group of people building these or many more years, but your question is really good. We just don't have a, we, an answer, a, um, a conclusive answer on that. Um, Native Americans in New Hampshire, uh, recently I belonged to the New Hampshire Archaeological Society. My uncle was a vice president of that years ago. And um, I was getting one of the publications uh, in the west part of New Hampshire, in Keene, New Hampshire, they found 13,000-year-old uh, evidence of Native Americans being there. In northern New Hampshire, just north of the White Mountains, kind of a harsh area, if you go back early in time towards the end of the glacial period, they have about 12,000-year-old human activity. So people often ask us, was anybody here 4,000 years ago? And of course, Native Americans go back uh, probably to about 13,000 years ago. And that's quite a surprise. So they were here. The Phoenician uh, writing was identified by Dr. Barry Fell around 1975. He was from Australia. He went, I'm sorry, New Zealand. He went to school in Edinburgh, Scotland, and then he came and he worked at Harvard University for a couple of decades. He was an invertebrate marine zoologist. At the same time, he, was, uh, he became a epigrapher, a study of ancient scripts. And when he looked at our scripts in 1975, uh, a couple of different stones had been found in 67 and 1969 and sat on on display here as unknown markings. We just didn't know what they were. His identification, and we don't know if he's 100% correct or incorrect, but he identified the three different types of script, Phoenician, Libyan, and Celt. 
uh, Celtic or Celtic Oam or Ogum, some people pronounce it. And he said it was from Iberia, so Spain and Portugal. He identified the style of the writing from that area. And he said that was a jumping off place like it was for Christopher Columbus much later to the new world. And it was a melting pot, they were multilingual and he felt they probably sailed together in some instances across the Atlantic Ocean. That was his theory. And that book came out in 1976 called America BC on a bicentennial. And then he updated it in 1994, just before he passed away. He had moved to San Diego because of health reasons. He had retired from Harvard University. And then he wrote Bronze Age America sometime around 1980, I think. And I have it behind me in our library in Sagar America. So he wrote three different books, but he also had a group called the Epigraphic Society. And that group was of, back in the 70s, about 1,200 members, I guess. And he had what he called occasional publications where he would, he would publish uh, different reports that he wrote and other authors wrote too. So it's kind of a working theory, but the inscriptions are not just here. They go from here. Actually, if you go up to Manana Island, Maine, next to Monhegan Island, we were there two years ago, and we were to attempt to go over, over to Manana. I've been wanting to go there since the 70s. And we finally get up there. We were going to go over there. And because it was during COVID, they had no boating between the two islands. The other one's inhabited basically by goats, I think. You can see them from Monhegan Island. We stayed there for four or five days on a beautiful island, but we couldn't go over to the other island to look at the stone petroglyphs. And that was a kind of a disappointment. They go from there all the way down to the Parahiba stones in Brazil that were found in 1862 by some slaves. The slaves were, it was great that they recognized it was something strange about them. They told people, but nobody really paid attention to them until I believe it was Cyrus Gordon much, much later. And he identified him, I believe, as Phoenician. I haven't looked at that paperwork for quite a while, so my memory might be off a little bit. But from Maine to Brazil and all the way out to the West Coast, we're finding inscriptions, even on the Milk River in Alberta, Canada, is uh, Ogham or Oham out there too, according to Barry Fell. And there are actually literally thousands of these mockings. And the question comes up, are they hoaxes, fakes, frauds, misidentifications, or natural mockings? You know, they've been accused of all, all of those above, you know, basically. Um, it seems very difficult to believe that uh, all these hoaxes were out there creating carvings all over the place. Some of them are quite in inaccessible, sometimes found just by purely by accident out in the middle of the woods. You see, you know, they might find a stone with these markings on them. It might be a hunter. It might be a hiker, you know, and they report it. And it's, it gets back to somebody and they go and they photograph of it and then they study it. And um, so the question still remains, were they old world people coming to the new world well before the Vikings in Columbus or, or was it a Native American involvement with the site, you know? I think it's, 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 it makes me think that our world was much more connected at one point. If it was the, either whether it was the Celtics, the Phoenicians, or maybe all of them came. And, and I think that like, there's this, and I'd love to get you guys, both of your opinions on this. Like, is there a cover up of our history? I mean, I, I think that's what other people have speculated on that there might be that, and maybe some of the old time archeologists don't want to admit that, that our society is much older than we think. I mean, what, what are you guys' thoughts on, or not our society, but things that they've been finding are much older, like the Beckley Tepe and all that, and you know what I Isn't mean? Isn't that amazing, too? That shouldn't be there, you know, over in Turkey. It's twice as old as we think civilization is, you know? Um, I, I'll just say something in the mockingship, too. I was just going to say, uh, Samuel Elliott Morrison from Harvard University, he wrote uh, The European Discovery of America, which I have behind me. Um, and he also, uh, he passed away in uh, 1976, he basically coined uh, kind of an acronym, uh, NEPCO, No Explorers Before Columbus. And uh, 
he wrote, uh, let's see, The European Discovery of America and um, the, I think The Truth About Leif Erikson, I think, I believe. I'd have to, I have the books behind me actually. And Admiral of the Ocean Sea, I'm sorry, that's his other book that's pretty famous and I have that behind me. The other one is by, actually by Gudun. But uh, so he wrote a couple of books and he died in 76, but 1960, they identified Lonzo Meadow up in Canada as, as a Viking settlement, you know? Um, and that proved the Vikings were actually in the new world. And until that time, probably in 58, 59, you could still be debating it, saying, no, I don't believe the Vikings made it. Their sagas, well, they might be embellished. They might be a little in the fairy tale kind of thing. They probably never made it past Greenland, you know, kind of thing like that. Uh, just recently, they found another site up in Point Rosie, 400 miles southwest of Newfoundland, another Viking. I think that was a boat repair place. That, there was a two-hour special on, I believe, on PBS. About two years ago, I watched it. They found it with Worldview 3 satellite, Sarah Pocot, from um, Birmingham, Alabama, the space archaeologist, I believe, is the one identified something strange. Pox Canada allowed people to go in for two weeks and dig. I don't know why they just didn't say just dig, you know, why give somebody two weeks, you know, because that means they has to be hurried a, a bit. But they did find another Viking settlement. And there's one in the Baffin Islands, too. So that was uh, before Samuel Morrison died, but he really didn't change his tune much. He says, well, it's in, that's in consequential. It's not that important. He had other things about that, but it proved that there were explorers before Columbus, you know, and the Vikings were here up in, in, in uh, North America. Um, yeah, and then go back even earlier, John Wesley Powell, they call it the Powell doc, uh, Doctrine. And basically, uh, I guess if I got it right, he said that if you find any old world uh, pre-Columbian artifacts, you have to basically ignore this them. So anything that might have been from Europe before the time of Columbus, if you find it, you're not supposed to acknowledge it. You're not supposed to deal with it. But I think his right-hand man, Cyrus uh, Thompson, I believe it was, he said, basically, we found so many old world type artifacts in some of the mounds. And, and, and Mark is much more up on the mounds. I do enjoy reading about them. And I was supposed to see the Edo mounds last week. But that's a whole different story that Mark knows about. We did get to the Crystal River mounds and Turtle Mounds in January in Florida. Those are amazing. But they found so many old world artifacts that they didn't have time to uh, catalog all of them. So he's kind of spilt the beans on his, on his boss. You know, his boss was a head of, I think, Department of Ethnology at the Smithsonian at that time, back in the late 1890s. So the Powell doc Doctrine might have kind of started, it might be even earlier than that. They're really not supposed to talk about old world pre-Columbian artifacts in the new world. It's Columbus, and then it's colonization after that, nothing before that, you know? And so maybe there's a little bit of that, you know? Um, they're not acknowledging it, they're refuting it. Um, they even attack some of the people that find evidence, even this site too, you know, we've gone, we've gone We've had a lot of that over the decades. We've been here since 1955. And when you listen to some of the people, they really don't know anything about our facts, data, and evidence. They're just basically putting out their opinion. Um, and they're ignoring all, all, the, all the evidence that we have. They don't even want to talk about the astronomical data, the 12 carbon datings. They don't want to talk about the stone uh, technique used to shape these stones, percussion flaking, which was actually uh, acknowledged by the state archaeologist, Dr. Gary Hume, who's friends with our archaeologist, eventually Patricia Hume. The same name, they're not married, everybody thinks they're married, but he was a state archaeologist 40 years ago. He's retired and he's still alive. But he said it's unmistakable that the people that built this site use stone tools to shape the big slabs of stone. It's not metal tools, it's not metal age, it's stone age technology. We have slab work all over the hilltop, roof slabs, wall slabs, sacrificial table, the astronomical slabs, you know, these big monoliths. And we have 34 slabs all over the hill we've identified in the last 40 years. Uh, quite a few of them just since I retired. 
is a big slabs propped up from the bedrock and then the edge is all serrated where somebody had been hammering on it, kind of like napping an arrowhead, if you will, a little dimpling and that's on these stones. And he identified that with Dr. David Stewart Smith who spent 40 years working with us too. And David had a couple of doctorates and um, he worked with Dr. Gary Hume. And Dr. Gary Hume, by the way, was a lithic specialist. He knew how people made stone tools. And, but these things were roof slabs, wall slabs, you know, et cetera, you know? So he said it's on a grand scale, like making a stone tool. Uh, they call it dressing the stone, basically. That's so interesting. Mark, did you have about the mounds? I don't know if Mark, Mark had a... Oh, I, I, um, I uh, do have a qu question that, that maybe kind of pull together... Uh, a few points that have been brought up. So, you know, Robert was talking a little bit about or asking you about, uh, you know, were, were the people, ancient people coming to uh, what would become known as America Stonehenge from Phoenicia, some type of old world uh, person. Um, but I, I found in uh, this very helpful book by Aubrey Burrell, mm. um, a passage about, uh, this is not considering the extra lines to the multitudinous notches and gaps in hills or their peaks or shoulders that are natural to the rugged horizons of most stone circles. So, you know, he does acknowledge right there, uh, you know, the notches that you were talking about. And he also, um, page 11, reading, I'll be reading from right there. Um, he writes, if it is also proposed that two thirds of them, the, the, the meaning stone circles, were constructed during the major period of circle building between 2500 and 1600 BC, this still would mean that 1,800 circles were erected in the whole of Britain over a span of 900 years, a rate of only two circles a year. Um, so when we consider you know, the notch where the sun, summer uh, solstice sunrise you know, comes up in the notch in the uh, to the east. Um, we can get into the earliest uh, radiocarbon dating from the site, which falls into that twenty five hundred to sixteen hundred BC. Um, yeah, that that seems like yeah, you, know, you got some circumstantial evidence that uh, a uh, Distant culture uh, may have um, made a transatlantic crossing. Um, you, you also have evidence of the uh, ibex in the uh, petroglyph and uh, the corbelled ceiling. So uh, that we also find that uh, New Grange. So, so what? Uh, what if we start putting all this information together? Um, doesn't it 
seem very plausible that what we find at your property is almost matched in, in, in like uh, uh you know, just say around the Southern England, Stonehenge, Avebury area. Yeah, I mean, the, um, the, the architecture, no, 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 I'm not an architect, of course, but uh, the style of the construction, the shapes of the structures, um, the orientation towards certain alignments, uh, solstices, equinoxes, cross-border days, and even lunar alignments is quite similar uh, to what you find in Western Europe in the area that you mentioned. But there are some chambers that are very, very similar. Like we have a chamber called the East-West Chamber. It's true East and West, not magnetic. And it runs uh, about 30 feet. And it, we, when I looked at a Time Life book in 19, around 1976 by one of our researchers, he brought it in and loaned it to us. It was a beautiful book. Uh, I wish I had a copy of it today. And really opened my eyes to Western megalithic sites. I hadn't been over, I had been to Spain by then and uh, Morocco and stuff, but I had not been in, and Spain has some magnificent megalithic sites too. Some of the, uh, some of the most impressive ones are there too. Um, but we saw a lot of medieval things, you know, throughout Spain and just went over to Africa. But when I looked at the pictures of like the gallery or gallery graves and they're in um, Northwest Ireland, I've been to Ireland, but not that part of Ireland. We went throughout most of the rest of Ireland and saw a lot of the chambers for about a week. But uh, also in Holland, they're called the, giant's bed and our uh, Houdenbinden, I think it's called over there. And then the other places in France, and I've been to France and Karnak. I have not been to Holland, but I've been to France and Ireland. And in uh, near Karnak out in Brittany, they call it the Lamenic. And so 3000 stones that have stood up the rows and everything really, really amazing. But nearby are chambers too. They don't usually show you in the photographs. And one of them is a gallery grave, a galley grave. They use both terms. I'm not sure if they use them interchangeably, but I've seen both terms used. And again, it's an east-west orientated structure and they vary from 20 to 60 feet. A lot of them have upright boulders or slabs. And in case of slabs, you're probably quarried slabs stood on the end and they're referred to as orthostats. And that's like what we have in our east-west chamber, orthostats that support stone roof. And again, ours is a little over 20 feet but we think it was actually a little bit longer. And during repairs during the 19, late 1930s by Mr. Goodwin, he actually uh, reassembled part of it because it had collapsed. But we had photographs back to 1920. So people often say, well, we don't know what Mr. Goodwin did in the late 30s. Well, we have photo, four different photographs of four different parts of the site. One of them is on that chamber with a young man standing there in 1920. So when I saw the one in France, I'm like, oh, gosh, it looks just like our east-west chamber. It reminded me of it so much. And they were used as tombs. The other chamber next to our east-west chamber is the B hut. It's shaped like the letter V as in Victor, and it's orientated southwest. And it's the only chamber on the site that's not north, south, east, and west out of true north. It's actually southwest, kind of towards the winter solstice, uh, yeah, the winter solstice sunset monolith in that direction. Um, and when I saw the ones in Ireland from that time life book, the wedge tombs of Ireland, and sometimes they have a little flat back wall. Ours is kind of a V without the little flat wall at the tip of it, if you would. When I looked at those, the photographs, and then when my dad and I did go to Ireland and we saw, and we got pictures of the ones we saw, it like, oh, one of them didn't have the roof on it and another one had the roof and it looked just like somebody picked ours up and brought it over to Ireland. They always face Southwest, the wedge tombs of Ireland. And again, they were used as tombs from what they know. 
And generally on the one I have, I think it's County Meath, I think, and it has like slab work on the side of it. Like it had been blocked, the entrance had been blocked and somebody shoved the stones away, kind of like, a, almost like a door, but you know, they just, they blocked it up. I always had the stones on the right side of it too. And that's pretty much the way it was found with Mr. Goodwin. There was some other debris around and everything. It looks like the same arrangement. Now in Spain, I have some pictures, 3D pictures of some of the megalithic sites there. And one of them looks just like the wedge tomb of Ireland or like our site. And the roof has a notch on it in the same place that our roof has the notch, could be just a big coincidence, the same kind of a cutout on the roof slab. Uh, and it's interesting, we don't know why the Masons did this or it was an accident, but the one in Spain has it in the same spot. The one in Spain, it's about twice as big as our cutout. On the ground, it's bedrock. And in Spain, the structure city looks like on bedrock. And the left side of it is a basin in the one in Spain. And it's kind of a small basin right in front of, right in front of it on the left side though. And ours is a bigger basin, but in the same spot. And again, a lot, I know archeologists, they like the word coincidence, skeptics like that word too. I will say it looks very, very similar to ours. So both in Spain and in Ireland, these kind of wedge or V-shaped structures. Um, and then we have one we call the Chamber in Ruins. And when I was in Karnak again in France, as I was riding, we rode bicycles. We rented at the bicycle shop, my wife and I did. Uh, I guess we, were, we hadn't got married yet. It was in 84, it was the year before we got married. So we were, uh, I guess, engaged. And anyway, we were riding down the road and I yelled to her, I said, turn, and she didn't hear me. And I turned into this, it was all hedgerows around and you can't really see much because it's very, very tall. And I took a left because I saw a sign that looked interesting. And I went in there and sure enough, there's a chamber in there. It's right in that same area with all the other structures. And you can't see from one to the other because of the hedges and everything. So I went in there and I'm looking at the structure of the roof intact. I go, that's our chamber in ruins with the roof still on it. Our, our roof has fallen in. It's about a 7,000 pound roof slab with a thousand pound lintel and the whole thing has fallen into the chamber. But if you put it back on top, it's like, I swear this thing would be a, an identical structure to ours. But one thing we have found recently using LIDAR and Mark might be getting to that is not only the core billing in the oracle chamber, which is a kind of an inverted arch, if you will. It's like, like an inclined staircase, if you will. It's a way of bridging a roof. And core bailing was used in beehive chambers and other types of structures in Europe. It's an old, old technique of making a ceiling. It's really, really neat. And it took, I, I would take skilled masons to do this. The Oracle chamber, when you first walk into the biggest chamber on our site, the walls north and south are vertical, pretty much, with big roof slabs. There's an east wing when you get about halfway down there on the right, and it goes down about 20 feet. That whole thing over your head is arched, as Mark knows, he's, he's been inside of it, you know. But we found out with LIDAR is even that chamber in ruins, three of the walls, uh, one of the have corners, the structure has three corners. Uh, where the door goes, the doorway goes in on the, from the south side going north, it's just a straight up and down wall. So it just has three corners in this particular structure, both with the LIDAR and then getting back in there and looking at it very closely with our assistant archeologist. He's actually a professional stonemason. He's been doing it for 35 years. He went to the University of Boulder, got his degree and everything. And he, we both looked at it very carefully and it, it is corbelled. So three of the corners are corbelled in that structure. There's another cha uh, chamber called the Patty Chamber. It's a smaller structure, it faces south, just like the chamber in ruins, the doorway faces to south. Uh, inside of that, again, it's kind of similar in design, but smaller, but three of the corners, and only has three corners are corbelled too. And the LIDAR, that laser detection and range that we use. It's handheld, you can walk in with it. It's a $50,000 unit. It has 16 um, 
lasers and one high definition camera. You can see down to about a centimeter. So looking at these, uh, we're quite impressed by the core billing. You know, it's very subtle, but you can see it. And I know Mark's been talked about core billing with me for over 10 years, you know, on our shows and everything. It is, it is important. It's something you find in European sites. But the trapezoid shape, Mark, we were, you know, that's something that came up, I think, just in the last uh, two years, I think, roughly a little, maybe two years ago. And that's when the LIDAR started. Yeah. Uh, uh, it's something new. That's one of our new things. Yeah. The, yeah. the trapezoid shape. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's, it's not like I'm, I'm super up to date on uh, some of the, um, all the you know, megalithic sites in you know uh, you know the British Isles, but I when I first saw Newgrange and Mays Howe, um, you know, I was you know you know really impressed with the engineering and you know, cr- you know stacking the stones to create like a dome. And you know that was I was there to, you know probably thirty years ago. Then you know, about tw- twenty years later, you know, end up working with you. And I, I would probably have a better understanding if I would you know go go back to those places. But it is such a distinctive feature from. A couple of the most prominent um, British burial mounds that y- you really have to wonder: Were they coming? T- uh, people from the old world coming to America with their engineering ideas? Because is there evidence that uh, Native Americans were using that engineering technique at you know, about 2000 BC. I have a question. I, I, and, too, I, I, I'm sorry, Mark. I, well, I, I didn't know if you were. But what is? Does this have to do with John? What, what is the John? Is there lore about giants too? And could, and here's where I'm going with that. Could they have been mistaken for Vikings? Like because the reason why I say that is you said that Vikings definitely came. And Mark, I think you would. And like. Could the natives have mistaken the giants with Vikings and this was maybe Viking technology? Does that sound what what do you guys think, Mark? Oh I think probably LA Mizuli would be a guest he could talk to about the Nicoline, you know, and the giants. And Mike, you certainly are up on the the mounds and some I mean, right down the street from you and the pictures of the giants. I mean, that's a whole like another can of worms, I suppose. And it's interesting. That's another show. That's another show, I think. Yeah. And L.A. Mazzulli and you, you're both a little bit more up on that than I am. I'm interested. I've heard a lot about it. And L.A. has been here to do our site several times, you know. Uh, But uh, we do have a carving. It's an anaglyph or I guess they call it a carving in relief. It's about 75 miles from here, found by, I believe, a farmer uh, in the last century. And he overturned the stone and it basically looks like our sacrificial table with a person on it with a leg spread on their back with something around their neck. And by the front left leg, there's like a circle. And Mark, you probably know that is the NERA logo, the New England Antiquities Research Association's logo that they picked out 
My dad started the group in 64 and they took that out. It's from a place called Mineral Mountain and there's chambers down there, but there's also this carving. And you almost think that somebody from there was here and they saw whatever activity was taking place on our table. Our table is about nine feet long by six feet wide, but a foot thick and it weighs about 9,000 pounds set up on four legs and it faces east wow. and west. At the bottom, there's a groove on the top of it. It's a very deep and wide groove, not like a limestone. And this thing's like several times bigger and heavier than a limestone. I've seen limestones for making soap uh, in New Hampshire country store museum, you know, and this is not a limestone. It's not this ivory soap factory as some, some skeptics, you know, have claimed in the past and maybe even today. But if it was a person and it was to scale, I mean, this person mock would, would be about nine feet tall. I mean, if it was, and if it's a woman giving birth or somebody's being sacrificed, but it table's nine feet and this person's all over that table. If you remember the, the carving and everything with a person on it. What are your thoughts, Mark? Like Is on that the it? Oh, see, do you have it, Mark? Let's see, maybe he's got a picture of it. That is uh, so cool. Is that the right foot? Is I can't see it. Oh, that's it. Yes, that's a stone. It has somebody's modern initials on it and something else. But you can see it's a bell shape, and that's pretty much the shape of our table. And by the front left leg, it's laying on its back. That's where the cutout and the bedrock is, and that's right below a runnel. <clears throat> so the groove, we thought, all these years was a big rectangle, you know, roughly four by six, but not exactly, you know. And we measured it recently, and you can see the table. Good, good, Mark. Thank you for the visuals. That's excellent. And you can see on that table there, there's that little runnel. And it's right where, you know, where that person's left foot was approximately. Uh, when water or rain gets on there or you pour something on it, it actually goes through the groove. It runs off the table through that runnel and then it ends up in a cutout, actually a cutout right in the bedrock where either that collected the water or in that case, it looks like a lip of a vase, you know, just a circle. It might indicate a lip of some sort of terracotta vase or something. And were they collecting something? People have called it an embalming table. People have called it a birthing table, a sacrificial table, a ceremonial altar, a limestone for making soap, a cider press for making uh, apple cider, I guess, you know. Uh, you can't get a horse and buggy down there to bring any of your uh, apples or if you're, you know, bringing barrels of lot or whatever down there. You can't get in there with a horse and a wagon. It's a very, very tight area. The oracle chambers on one side is two uh great big tall monoliths are about seven feet tall on either side of the table and then there's a ramp area i can't get my three-wheel atv it's almost 40 years old i go in there get leaves my smallest eight i have three atvs i can't get it in there i don't know how you would ever get a horse and wagon in there but that's been one of the arguments by some of the skeptics you know oh it's you know a cider it was a cider mill or you know and the nearest uh apple orchard was about a half a mile down the hill from here you know there's no historical data and there's no archaeological data that it was ever used. You find the pulp or something, you know, because the site was first excavated almost 100 years ago. And if it was only built 50 or 60 years before that time, you'd find a lot of, you know, the whatever the site was used for still in the ground that wouldn't have rotted, you know, in that time period, you know. So that anaglyph is kind of interesting. And you can see the size of the person in relationship to about a nine by six foot table. The groove we did find out is trapezoid in shape. It's about nine inches narrower at the top than the bottom. And that surprised us. The groove is not uh, based on um, imperial measurements. It does seem to conform to a standard unit of measure, an ancient measurement called the megalithic yard. And Dr. Alexander Tom in Scotland, he started looking at the, he lived in Scotland near Dunlop, and he started looking at the megalithic sites in the late 30s. He was on a sailboat. He approached one of the stone circles, and it just dawned on him, just strikingly, I guess, that 
as he sailed up to it that you know that this might be aligned with the heavens somehow i think so he began his lifelong quest at that point but he was a doctor of engineering he was at glasgow he also was at oxford university and the engineering he retired in the uh, mid 60s and he developed the engineering um, department there so well they actually named the building after him but dr alexander tom is like the father of astronomy. And my dad and I went over there in 82 and we had supper with him and his son, Dr. Archibald Tom, a lot of doctors in that family. And he was a doctor of engineering and he was part of that whole research on ancient sites. And uh, we had Turkey and it was our Thanksgiving and they didn't even know that, but we had an evening with them at their compound. He passed away in 85. So we got him at the end of his life. He was a wonderful guy. And then his son died only 10 years later. I think the grandson's carrying out this work, but they actually found the standard unit of measure and um, uh, against much controversy or resistance that the ancients actually had a yardstick. I mean, these people were very smart back then. Of course, they probably had a yardstick to build these structures. Everything we build today is in metric or imperial measurements or something else we use today. You know, No matter, even my phone has a certain measurement to it. You know, <laughs> Everything does. And these ancient people did that too. They had some set of a yardstick. So 30, uh, 32.64 is a megalithic yard. It's 83 centimeters. It's uh, 2.72 feet. And um, there's also a thing called the Spanish Vera. It's an ancient measurement and it's 3268. It's only, you know, 64 versus 68. It's very, very close to that. And they find that measurement used in the construction of these ancient chambers. When I built the diorama in the, about 1977, and it's in the front of our museum, when you first walk in, you see a diorama of about 30 of the 106 acres that we have here. Uh, we could have made 110 acre or maybe 110 acre diorama back then, but everything would have been compressed. And we didn't quite realize at the time that we have so many stone features all over the 110 acres, you know? That's a lot of discoveries in the last 45 years. And um, so uh, I was up there measuring just to get more accurate measurements. My scale was one inch equals 20 feet on this diorama. And I got the topography off of topographical maps. So it's correct uh, on the, the grade, grade of the hill. And it's also to scale with the walls and chambers. And we started measuring some of these things. We were aware of Dr. Tom's work. In fact, my father was communicating with Alexander, Tom, uh, Dr. Archibald Tom, the son, back in the 70s, before we met him. And we seem to have found that, yes, this site might conform to megalithic yard. And the megalithic yard can be broken into uh, a megalithic rod. That's two and a half megalithic yards. A megalithic fathom is a half a megalithic yard. And also there's a megalithic inch, which is one hundredth of a megalithic rod, not to confuse everybody, but they seem to find these measurements were used in stone circles and chambers. So there was increments. Dr. Uh, when William Goodwin first was researching this in 1937, he bought 20 acres of the land. He was from Hartford, Connecticut. He was an antiquarian, insurance millionaire, first cousin of J.P. Morgan. But he, he, was, he was very, very much interested in ancient sites. And he wrote three, uh, four books, actually. He died in 1950. But his right-hand man was an engineer from MIT, Roscoe Whitney. And he, he lived in Lemonster, Mass., about an hour and a half west of here in Massachusetts. And he was up here doing work for Mr. Goodwin. He set up a plane table. And he did cross-section, uh, cross profile, and plan view diagrams of the site at the beginning before they actually started doing restoration work and doing it. We have all those. We have every, all, those, all those in our archives today, all those reports that he did. Well, one thing he said was, 
whoever built this site either didn't give a damn or know about linear measurements, because I've looked at the height, the width, and the depth of these structures. They don't conform to the imperial measurements of inches, feet, yards, and you know, old rods, you know, basically. So he was mystified as to what the yardstick was who built the site. He didn't know anything about megalithic yards, of course, back in the 1930s. Dr. Tom first published that in 1967. So this is, you know, about 30 years later. So I think Tom was on to it earlier than 67, you know, a bit earlier than that, but that's when he put out his report and that ruffled the ac academia. They didn't like that, you know, uh, these ancient primitive people, even though they could build a magnificent chambers at his marks that he was very impressed by the, the stone construction, the engineering and everything and astronomically aligned sites. All these people couldn't have done that with a measuring stick, you know, they weren't that bright or brilliant. And actually they did, you know, from what we can tell today. So the megalithic yard seems to be found uh, it's 83 centimeters. It seems to be found in South America now, Central America, and some of the southern mounds in the United States and Louisiana, for instance, Watson Break and Poverty Point. Uh, Dr. John Clark from BYU, Mark sent me the information. Mark was always sending me stuff, which is great. And uh, the report he did was about 80, one of the measurements, he found a couple different measuring systems, but one of them was 83 centimeters. And I, I did the conversion on my phone. I was wondering what that would equate to in inches. And when I did, I when I said I sent the message to Marcus. Did you change? Did you convert this to inches? He goes, no. I said it's it's thirty two sixty four. It's a megalithic yard, you know. Well, Dr. John Clark, one of his colleagues who works at BYU, was here about a month ago, and I gave him a, what we're talking about right now. And I'm hoping he'll raise doc, uh, Dr. John Clark's interest in this, you know. Uh, maybe look into it a little bit more because. That might be another piece of the evidence, you know, that this has a connection to the old world, a uh, standard unit of measure. And that LIDAR can see down to about a centimeter, and that's going to aid in that too, you know, because the guy was up here, he did 15 acres of the 106. It, he had to process it. He said he got a new high speed computer and software from Montreal. His equipment's made in Florida, the LIDAR is. He goes, it took me 600 hours to process the 15 acres, <laughs> you know. So, and he's doing other sites all the way down to Pennsylvania. And the LIDAR is just amazing. You know, you can see details. You can strip out trees by just pushing the button on the computer. You can go up underneath the chamber. You can go above it. And you can go back from space and look at it, even though it's handheld. The first images I set, saw, I said, uh, and the gentleman's, uh, the gentleman that did it, uh, Tom, Tom Elmore from Suffield, Connecticut, Nat Geo. I said, Were you, you weren't using any drones. It looks like you used a drone on us. He goes, no, no, that's what the computer can do. It's just amazing with the software. I'm walking around with the unit. You know, and he has this big shoulder strap, this whole thing on him. You just walk around and when he puts out the stuff, you, you can put it any position you want. You know, it's just simply amazing. So we might be looking at that standard unit of measure uh, using LIDAR. So that might be kind of a nice, you know, a nice tool to use basically. That's so interesting. I brought up your website while you were talking. I don't know if you guys Dennis, saw, I shared since, my screen. Um, since you were... Sorry, go ahead, Mark. Oh, yeah, I, I was... Uh... Just going to say, uh, you know, you were just mentioning um, Dr. Clark's information. Um, you know, we've been uh, looking at um, other science associated with your site, but, uh, you know, to further um, the validity of 
America's Stonehenge as a scientific a place of science. Um, Harvard and uh, Penn State's um, astronomy departments have been there. what were their conclusions and you know we can put that on top of what you, you know, started the show uh discussing the u.s uh geographic uh survey people uh you know doing their maps of of the area as well so uh, uh what did such prestigious colleges uh conclude about the astronomical alignments well, it's actually uh, individuals from those colleges, you know, like Dr. Barry Bell, you know, and also uh, Morris Payne, the gentleman that was the uh, at the undergraduate uh, school of architecture at Harvard University. And from Penn State, it was Dr. Louis Winkler. And he was there for, I believe, 64 up to about 1999, roughly when he retired. And then he passed away two years after retirement, unfortunately, and we lost uh, another resource. But these individuals all felt this site was an ancient site. Uh, they looked at, you know, they looked at the data. They looked at the survey work. They looked at the structures. They actually spent so much time looking at old reports, new reports, and uh, the carbon datings and everything. And you know, they, they basically felt that it was an ancient site. It was not something built by a shoemaker, farmer, and his family, if you will. And that there are other sites, as we mentioned, across the Northeast. And they were looking at some of these other sites too and seeing the similarities and also you know, um, feeling that there was a connection between our site and some of these other sites, you know. Our site might be a little different in that it's like the Reader's Digest version, if you will, on about 106 acres. Uh, we have just about almost every feature that you can find throughout the rest of the Northeast, you know, as far as the uh, chamber, structure, monolith, carn, that kind of thing. You know, we have them all on this property. You go to uh, the Hudson Valley, they're spread out over Dutchess, Westerstrom, and uh, um, in uh, what did I miss there? Uh, yeah, Westchester, Dutchess, and uh, uh, another. Uh, but it goes into uh, Monticello, Bethel, and Woodstock, New York. So in that area on the Hudson, going to the west, is about 500 different structures, and so uh, they're kind of spread out over the landscape up in Vermont. The structures are spread out over Woodstock, Royalton, Putney, Pulteney, and they've been looked at for you know, from many, many, many years too, and the similarities to our site, but they seem to be kind of, you know, not dense, like ours are all in that kind of a dense area, you know, high density of structures in like 106 acres. And again, North Stonington, Connecticut, that's spread out over 35,000 acres, but there are 8,000 different features. So um, that makes ours a little bit different. It's all compressed into a smaller area. Um, But those people that worked at those universities, I mean, the Harvard-Smithsonian Center, separately from, um, from you know, uh, Barry Fell and also from Morris Payne, they did that 1978 analysis on the five years of survey work done by Beverly Pearson and Associates out of Derry, New Hampshire. We paid as we could go, and it took five years to do the 15 acres with the astronomical alignments. And at that point, they sent the data down there to the Harvard-Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics. They looked at it over the winter. And I have the name of the person that did all the analysis and all these reams of uh, all these computations, they spun off X, Y, Z, all this stuff. And they said basically that if these were used for astronomical alignments, they would work about 1800 BC plus or minus about 200 years. And the reason for that is the Earth's tilt. It's a very slow 
change. It's called the obligity cycle, and it's about a 41,000 year cycle, about one degree every century. I'm sorry, it's about one minute, one sixtieth of a degree every century. So 40 centuries or 4,000 years, about 40 minutes, it will change. The sun and moon are both about a half a degree or 30 minutes across. This is slightly more than that, it's about 40 minutes. So it's noticeable for the solstices, the cross quarter days. And the equinox, if it's not on the horizon, it's up a little bit, it will change that a little bit too. Um, and the lunar alignments, of course, will be off a little bit. Um, and so that report, the date agreed with a 1971 carbon dating on the main site of the chamber in ruins. And that date, 1971, was calibrated to about 1800 BC, plus or minus, again, around 200 years or so. It was like really interesting. They both came up with about the same date, six years apart. One was astronomy, one was radiocarbon dating, you know. Um, and then, of course, you have the stone masonry techniques used to quarry the slabs, to shape the slabs, not using metal tools, but stone age tools. It doesn't give you a precise date, but it does show you that it's stone age technology, not metal age, you know, something that the Patty family or some colonial, you know, somebody else in that period built in this site. You don't see the metal drill marks on these structures, uh, except uh, there's about 12 of them, because when the Patty family was here, they actually had quarrymen taking taken some of the slabs away and causing some damage to the site. But uh, they use that techniques to, to shape these stones, you know, the plug and feather and the drill, the star drill. There'd be literally thousands of those drill marks all over the roof slabs and all over the table and the quarry sites that the rocks came out of, the uh, astronomical alignments, you know, and they're not there, you know, they didn't use that technique, it was something else. So yeah, we've had people from other universities too, you know, from Dartmouth College, uh, that was Belgian Stephenson, the great Arctic explorer, and they have the center still named that. He died around 1963. He was part of the Early Sites Foundation formed in 1954. And it dissolved in 1964 after some of the members died, like Hugh Morrison was a Dartmouth professor too. And these people were quite interested in this site and other sites in New England. And, um, and the other gentleman was uh, Julius Bird from the American Museum of Natural History in New York. And he was here in the 40s and 50s digging on this site, you know? And he felt that the site was worthy of further research. You know, he couldn't really tell what it was. And that's because they didn't have carbon dating when he, when he was here during the 40s. And, um, he came back in the 50s uh, for a short time, but um, so yeah, the, but there has been a bit of skepticism out there by people that these sites shouldn't exist. They must be all built by a bunch of farmers. Um, uh, there's no ancient culture of stone builders in the Northeast, except the rest of the United States has, as you know, there are mounds from the Ohio Valley to the Rio Grande from Florida all the way up to Ontario, Canada. Some estimates were up to a million mounds built. So people were very energetic in the past. The cliff dwellings out west, I've been out to Mesa Verde, and there are thousands of those cliff dwellings. We've been to quite a few of them in the Southwest. We've been out there a number of times. And then uh, there's even the uh, geoglyphs uh, out in uh, the Colorado River in, in uh, uh, Blythe, California, the Blythe Indilagos. And there are about 200 of them. And they're artwork in the desert, just like you find in Nazca down in Peru, you know? So people were doing things on this continent and you know Canada here and into Mexico obviously um, but in the northeast you're not supposed to find any ancient ruins and yet we have these I doctor David Stuart Smith who died in 2016 again he was with us for about 40 years he says I think we have an ancient stone building culture he called he said a lithic culture a stone building culture in the northeast that's been overlooked ridiculed ignored uh, in in the people that are involved with these things you know they've been you know they try to uh 
you know, um, kind of ridicule the people, discredit the people working on these things as a bunch of screwballs, basically. I think in the long run, they're going to be wrong. It's just a number of these sites that have been found, but the number of them, uh, there's no recorded history of Farmer Jones building these things. The carbon dating, so now we're doing optically stimulated luminescence across the uh, Northeast, and we're still waiting for some results of that. But as Mark knows, we found serpentine walls here since 2016, and you think we have 14, they shape like a snake, a head, body, and tail from 20, about 27 feet. And the biggest one we think we have is 2,550 feet. And when I found my first couple, the 27 footer was the first one I saw. And I said, it looks like a serpent. And I had no frame of reference. And I found a couple more that spring of 2016, Scott Walters came in with a big group, including um, um, Alan Butler from England with his wife. He's been on History Channel many times. So this is kind of a big group and I showed him some of my serpentine walls and I said I don't know what I got they look like serpents um then uh, 2017 we went to a meeting in Groton Connecticut and we met the gentleman who wrote the book ceremonial stonework about North Stonington Connecticut when I looked at the book before he spoke I'm like oh my god there's pictures of serpent walls down here they number about 400 in North Stonington 400 serpent walls from about 20 little under 27, well, around 27 feet, all the way up to about 300. The average is just under 100 feet in length. Linear, rectilinear, some are S-shaped. Some uh, on our site actually come around and bite the tail, the Ouroboros. And when I saw that in his book, I almost fell over. I'm like, and then he spoke. He did his PowerPoint presentation. He showed all the different, a lot of the different structures down there. And I'm like, we have that, we have that here, we have that. And then I got to talk to his wife after. After, after that, they had a break. And then a lady from Colorado, Elizabeth, I forget her last name. She spoke about what she has in Colorado, east of Denver. She's showing her cons, chambered cons. She's showing um, uh, con fields. And then she starts showing walls shaped like the letter D. And they have those in North Stonington, like the letter D is in Delta. Big area with a D-shaped wall. We have one here. I noticed it when I built my diorama in 1977. I said, oh, we got a D-shaped wall here. Interesting. They have them there. But the lady spoke from Colorado. She's showing her D-shaped walls in Colorado. Next thing she showed was her serpentine walls. And one of them had the same triangular head as one of ours. My wife and I, we elbowed each other at that moment, you know, when, when we saw that on the screen. She did it by Skype, so we couldn't really talk to her in person. We found out later that they're in Alabama. They call them, um, they call them rattlesnake walls. They're a little bit smaller than ours. Dr. Holstein from Jacksonville State University has been working on those since the 70s. He didn't know about us. We didn't know about him. He does now. And he's invited us to meet us at the campus eventually, covid uh, 2020 and last year we, we didn't go because of COVID. We just decided to wait till this mess is over a little bit. Um, and then after that, we found her in California. I got 110 pictures on our computer here of serpentine walls and other wall pens that look like what we have here. Let me stop my screen share. Uh, sorry, I was, Mark was showing a picture. I wanted to, I was sharing your website. I wanted to stop it so Mark could show the picture. Yeah. Oh, uh, that, yeah. oh and, okay. And that's, you have I wanted to make a point. Um, if you go back to like the Anunnaki, even like if you think about like Anki and Thoth, the serpent was always a symbol of wisdom. And if you think of you have the serpent mound in West Virginia, you have your serpentine walls. There's this, there's this common theme of the serpent everywhere, which makes me think that whatever culture built your site, built a lot of these other megalithic sites and Maybe they were, maybe we, I don't know if they were ancient aliens, if they were Native Americans, if they were Vikings, if they were Phoenicians, but I think it was a similar culture. What would you say? Well, the serpent, yeah, you, it is a worldwide, as Mark and I discussed a lot of times, it's worldwide, where the Egyptians, they had the, uh, they had the cobra, the wind yet, I think it's called. 
And also um, Scott Walters in one of his episodes, Mark re might remember in Scotland, they showed as part of a natural formation called an esker. He's a geologist. And, but they, what they did is the ancient people actually added onto that and they made a serpent out of it, out of stone. Um, and so the serpent uh, is worldwide. That's the problem. That makes it a little hotter. Like if there was only one group that did it, we might be able to narrow it down a little bit to who these people were. But Native Americans at the snake dance is Quetzalcoatl, the bearded serpent in Mexico, which we've been on Mexico several times, and Kukulkan, the Mayan one. Yes. And uh, Mayan, uh, we've been to Chichen Itza too. But um, but the, the serpent Chichen Itza has the serpent um, on the equinox, on the on the you know yes. when the equinox, the serpent comes down the steps, right? It's Absolutely. amazing. Yeah. I'm sorry, that I didn't so interrupt cool. you. Uh, no, but that's a good point because our our biggest one here. Uh, is the watch house and the watch house is a glacial boulder it's natural but the shape of it looks like a serpent's head and i think they chose it specifically we've been walking by that since 1955 when my dad first visited the site opened it up in 58 our visitors have been walking by it for 64 years until about i'd say about five years ago it was one of my probably it wasn't one of my first serpents found it was probably in late 2016 i kind of started recognizing i think we've got something going on with the watch house and then we really looked at it very closely. And uh, the LIDAR image, I might have sent you, Amak, did you have that LIDAR image uh, of, the, of the watch house with the serpent's tail in front of it? Um, well, you, if you can dig, I don't know if you can dig it up. If you can, I will keep talking. If you do see it, yeah, that's good. But, um, it's, I, I think I sent it to Robert. I'll, I'll let me, I'll send, yeah, Robert, I'll send it to your uh, Facebook. Yeah. Well, I'm describing it. I can pull it up and share my screen. I, I'll, uh, it, it's really amazing, yeah. I think the Great Serpent Mound in Peebles, Ohio, which Mark's been to, and he's a little ways from there, but I used to go into Ohio all the time when I flew for American Airlines, and I never took the opportunity to go over there. Um, but it's 1,350 feet long, and it's built on the side of a meteorite crater. I think they found that more recently that that was the case. It's interesting they did that. And the, it kind of an S-shaped sort of, it squiggles back and forth, and uh, it's aligned with the solstice for summer, winter, and spring and fall equinox. And the head looks like it's swallowing an egg, although there's some archaeological work that went on on the head. So it might be altered a little from the original. It had a monolith, and I think the monolith fell over the bank and down into the, down into the uh, where a river is. Our biggest serpent might be twice as big as that. That's a mound made out of earth on a stone platform, I believe. Um, I am in contact with Ross Hamilton, who's who's kind of uh, one of the people that takes care of that. And I've been on the show with Jeff Wilson on mock on mock show actually. Jeff was with me uh, talking about serpent walls. It turns out he had been to our site years ago. It was we were really cool. We didn't know anything about serpentine walls back then, so he was really interested in the serpentine wall thing. It's possible that the inspiration could come from the constellation Draco. It's a possibility in the Northern Hemisphere. In the Southern Hemisphere, something else you were looking at, perhaps. But Draco, 4,000 years ago, it's the Thuban, Alpha Draconis. And it's not the brightest star, it's mislabeled, but Alpha Draconis or Thuban is the pole star about 4,000 to 4,500 years ago, maybe a little bit earlier when the Great Pyramid was built in Cheops, the shaft pointing at that. Today, it's Polaris, of course. So in the course of an evening, around the time our site was probably constructed, Thuban would have been there as a pole star it wouldn't have moved and Thuban would have kind of rotated around it in the course of the evening which is kind of cool so it's possible that uh, Thuban uh, our Draco was the inspiration but we have serpents we have snakes up here too and rattles we used to have rattlesnakes here maybe that was part of it too but uh, like you mentioned it can be a uh, wisdom 
and even a medical staff, you know, the medical staff has two flying serpents on it. But down at Chikinitsa, you're right. So 91 steps on each side, 364, and then one more step, we climbed it, you know, and that makes 365 steps for the year, or days for the year. But on the equinox, the serpent shadow and light actually goes down the steps. Our watch house on the equinox, we only saw this two years ago because we had to do a forestry project here. We thinned out the entire hilltop so we could see alignments better. We never could see the sunlight into that chamber. For decades, even Hans Holzer back in 1992, uh, he's kind of famous, you know, he, he passed away in 09 the same year my dad did. And they had a two year show just recently in the Holzer files on Travel Channel, it's on Discovery Plus now. And Hans came up here many times. In 76, he actually produced Lennon Nimoy's second episode of a show in search of, and he actually did the directing. And I forgot that I was here when he did it too. He actually produced that episode of the 144 shows that Lennon Nimoy did. But uh, he asked in 1992, about that stone in the back wall of the chamber of the watch house. What would happen if the sun hit it or something, you know? And Barbara Hand Clow actually wrote the forward and she's asking about that stone. And other people have written about it too. Well, until two years ago, you could never see it. The trees are in the way, it's just a thick forest. So we cleared it out. And in the spring of 2020, the sun rose, uh, rose in the morning, but about eight o'clock later, you know, a couple hours after sunrise, the sunlight went in and illuminated that stone. It's a piece of quartzite. The rest of the stone wow. is kind of a gold. But, it sh but not only illuminated, but it actually, the shape of the entrance of the chamber, like Newgrange in Ireland, it had to go into the chamber. And I've been to Newgrange, Marquez too. The uh, shadow and light actually framed the stone. Actually, the shadow and light are the same shape as the left side of the stone and the top of the stone. And we're like, whoa, we thought it would just illuminate it. It actually framed it. That's the day that, Kukukan's going down the steps at Chicken Itza. That's a day at Chaco Canyon. It has a sun dagger for the solstices, but on the equinox is a carving of a serpent. And on the equinox, if you could get up in the butte, we've been to Chaco Canyon two and a half years ago or three years ago. We couldn't go up the butte. They won't lend anybody up there except with special permission. But it's a, it's a shadow and light on that carving. It's split in half by light and dark. So when we're watching our thing in the morning, Somebody's going to be out of Chaco Canyon, perhaps in the equinox, watching a serpent being split. That chamber is, we think the womb represents a womb, and that quartzite represents an egg. And the sun is the male, the uh, light's coming in, fertilizing the egg. And over 30 minutes later at 8.30, we did a time lapse. We just kept doing pictures, and my daughter-in-law put it all together on YouTube for 30 seconds. It turns into, looks like, just like a hand with the index finger pointing back right at the edge of that stone like it's fertilized. I mean, it's, it could be coincidental, but when you look at it, you go like, oh my God. And if they did that, these people were masters at, you know, designing and building these stone structures to create that light and shadow effect. You How know? could they do and that? They you know? Mistake, I know. And if they made it's a mistake, insane. they have to come back, come back six months later and try it again. I mean, you know, uh, it was amazing. Now, there's two other caves in Colorado called Pathfinder and Crack Creek. They're natural, although they've been modified by people in the ancient past. There's petroglyphs in there. And on the equinox, again, it's a serpent. And the serpent's illuminated on the equinox sunrise. And both caves are separated by so many miles. I had never heard of these caves before. Unlike Chaco, is well known. Uh, Mojave North Cave in California is another one. And that has a serpent too in the equinox. So there seems to be something with serpent. And you picked it up right away when you said the Tikanitsa on the equinox, you know, the serpent goes down the steps, the shadow and light effect. I think there's something going on and, and they may not be contemporary, but maybe there's something with a serpent and an equinox that goes way back 
and it's passed through the generation after generation. And in here, it's expressed in our watch house, you know, that with the illumination, you know, with the egg, you know. But uh, New Grange is a winter solstice, and they have the lottery, and it goes to that window box. It goes 65 feet into a cruciform shape in the back. Some people speculate that that could be Cygnus, the swan, or the Northern Cross because of that shape, you know. I've seen that in Mexico, too, that cross. So, um, you know, there are illuminations, and we have 57 alignments, we believe, where the sun, moon, and stars at our site, and that illumination, when I just described, is probably number 57, you know. And that's since 1965 when we began researching this. And um, so it's not something that happened overnight. It's been almost 60 years of astronomical research here, almost, you know. Wow, that's amazing. Uh, and we don't know it all. We don't have all the answers. All we can tell you is what we know, what we find. And we can put some theories out there. We don't try to go too far up, but we can actually show you that illumination. It's not like, it's not something that I can just tell you about, but I can't show you. So you have to believe me. You can come and watch it for yourself, you know, as long as yeah. the sun's out on the upper. It's really pretty cool. And I think the fall equinox will have a gathering too, watching that sunrise too, you know. Yeah, yes. I was just going to, sorry, go ahead, Mark. Yeah, I was just going to say, uh, yeah, you're going to have a, a special observation next week. Uh, you know, might as well plug that. Uh, I'll share the screen. I'll share it on my screen. I'm, I'll uh, I'll do a screen share. I can I can, I have his website up right here. Let me uh, figure out how to do it right here. Boom. Can you guys see his screen? I have your events yeah. up right here, Dennis. If you oh, want to go okay. over them. Yeah. Um. I can see you. I haven't. Oh, okay. Yeah. Right. It's a little it's a little hard for me to read, but uh, let's see if I can blow it up and scale there. Yeah. So we have um like I said, 57 alignments with the sun, moon, and star. The, the cross-quarter days, a lot of people haven't heard of them. Some people have heard of them. February 1st, August 1st, May 1st, November 1st. Those had a lot to do with agriculture and they're the beginning of each season. And we have those alignments here. The head, that, that boulder, that's the head of that 2,550-foot serpent, the watch house boulder, it looks like a serpent's head. It looks like it's biting its tail after 2,550 feet with a LIDAR image. It's pretty amazing. Um, it's also um, a February 1st alignment. And today you might think of a Groundhog's Day or or it's uh, Candlemas. The ancient Celts called it Imblo. And it's the beginning of spring. And you get to March, which you think is the beginning of spring, like the 20th, it's mid, it's mid uh, spring, you know, equinox. May 1st, or May Day, and the Celts call it Beltane or Bieltana. That's the beginning of summer. And you get to June 20th to 21st, it varies each year. People would say, oh yeah, it's a midsummer solstice. And then other people say, no, wait a minute, it's the first day of summer, which is it? It actually, in ancient times, was the middle of summer. It's called the midsummer solstice. The first day of summer, again, goes back to Beltane. So the cross-quarter days are very important. And then August 1st is um, Lamas and Old Norwegian holiday. And I'm not sure what else falls on that today for modern holidays. Some, that one might not have too much in modern time. That's the beginning of fall. And then, you know, you get into September 20th, 21st, whatever. That's the fall equinox. It's really mid-fall. November 1st is All Saints Day, the day after Halloween or All Souls Day. The Celts called it Samhain. Um, actually, uh, I used to say Samhain, but it's Samhain. Me too. Um, <laughs> yeah, I know. I get, but I got a friend in England, and she corrects me all the time. And she's wonderful. And she's, <laughs> she's, she's another one you should have on your show, Maria Wheatley. She's amazing. Anyway, her dad was here 40 years ago visiting us, and she's been trying to get over for the last couple of years, but she, she canceled her. She goes out to... Um, uh, well, see, she goes out to Sedona and she does lectures. She goes to other parts of the country and Max knows all, and had her on her show, but she's really good about these holidays, these particular holidays. So if you ever get on, you can ask about cross-quarter days. 
but yeah, so that, so when we went to Mesa Verde in 1990 for the first time, we, again, we were out there with Chaco Canyon about two and a half years ago, but Mesa Verde, when I got there, they had the solstice and equinox alignments in Mesa Verde. It's in Colorado. It's the first national archaeological park. It's amazing. We actually stayed there last time right in the park. We've been there in 1990 when my son was a baby. I found out that they had cross-quarter days, and I was pretty amazed. Also, when I went to Cahokia in 1993 for training, for the airline training out there at Flight Safety International, I uh, had enough time to actually drive across from the uh, airport side across the river into uh, into uh, Illinois, and I got to see Cahokia. It's one of the biggest pyramid complexes in North America. It's amazing. And they had a circle of wood at one time, so they call it America's Woodhenge. The circle rotted, but they replaced it with telephone poles, and it's aligned, I believe, with the solstice and equinoxes plus the cross-border days. And I have to verify that last part of that because it was 30 years ago. That was out. I guess I was out there in 1992, and I still have a T-shirt from that. So the cross-quarter day can be overseas. The Celts had it. It can be Native American, like Mesa Verde. And it was at this site. So, and that's a winter solstice picture right there you're looking at. It's a beautiful picture. Um, we opened that clearing in 1965. And the person that worked on clearing that is living in Maine. He became a nuclear engineer. He put the two uh, nuclear reactors on the Nimitz. In 1969, he was down in Newport News. He drove home in his bug eye, 1958 Triumph. And he got to New Hampshire. We met him at his father and mother's house. He had built a wooden snowmobile. That guy was really amazing. He built this wooden snowmobile and he broke the trail up to the top of the hill for us. My neighbor, my friend uh, from Derry, New Hampshire, about eight miles away where we lived. We came down, my dad did. And when, so in 1970, went up for the winter solstice again. And that day, the skies cleared and we got the first clear shots of the sun actually setting on it. But that gentleman, that nuclear engineer in 67, took some pictures and it was a cirrus uh, cloud uh, deck. There's a cloud deck of cirrus clouds. So all I can see is a bright light over the stone. We knew it worked, but you can see the orb, you know, because of the cirrus cloud. So in 1970, we got the first real clear pictures of the sun actually setting on that stone. And that's really when the work really took off throughout 1970. But uh, that guy is really amazing. And he ended up his career over in Japan and he was ready to return home 10 years ago from Osaka and the Fukushima mess. So his company, Westinghouse, put him and four other team members on helping to fix that problem over there. And he was the last member of the team on that particular thing. Well, so Dennis, uh, Westinghouse is guy, a very smart guy, you know. Westinghouse is where I'm from. I'm from Pittsburgh. You know, oh, West- yeah. yeah. I think he was going back to Charlotte. Maybe that was one of their other headquarter places. But yeah, you know, Westinghouse for sure. And yeah, and he's going to come here this summer. We hope for the summer solstice. He's living in an uh, island up in Maine, a beautiful island now, retired. And he has a place in France he goes to every winter. He just got back. And he's going to come for the first time in, I think, 52 years to actually watch uh, an astronomical alignment here. So we're kind of excited. Hopefully he can make it. You know, and the I have good. to get out. I have to get out there as well. I, I'd like to. I definitely want to visit. Like, And I'm not far from you. Like I said, I'm right in Pennsylvania. I'm in Pittsburgh. So, you know, maybe okay. eight-hour drive, six-hour drive. You know, it's, it's yep. not that yep. bad. But um, you're, far from, you're close to Mark, actually. You're not too far from Mark. Yeah. Yeah. We were at the same UFO conference and I didn't see him. I didn't know what he looked like. We, we were at the both at the Butler UFO con <laughs> and we were supposed to meet up. But then I didn't know what he looked like back then. Like, you know, so oh. it's just interesting. <laughs> but um, oh, you know now. Yeah. You just, yeah. <laughs> you should have got up and just started yelling Mark, you know, and see what happened. You know? <laughs> yeah. But um, if you want to tell everybody, I got I have to do another show at 830. Um. If we want, we can finish. If uh, Dennis, you want to, or Mark, you want to tell everybody where they can find you, and then Dennis, if you want to tell everybody where they can find you. 
Uh, I, I uh, do a podcast about every other Tuesday night on uh, BarbaraDeLong.com. Um, you can check her website for um, you know the dates we're doing shows. Um, and, uh, so, De- Dennis, uh, tell us about your website where they can learn about the summer solstice next week and any other events coming up at America's Stonehenge. Oh, thank you so much, Mark. And I'd like to, again, thank you, Mark. And thank you, uh, Robert, too, you guys. And Mark's been wonderful. Uh, I think I've known him over 10 years now. And you came up about seven or eight years ago, Mark. You got to come back again, you know. Um, yeah, it's but, a great place. And, and, and Robert, you come up, too, you know, like you say, a six-hour drive. Um, so we're located in southern New Hampshire. Our website is StonehengeUSA.com. Uh, if you go to our website, there's a phone number if you need to reach us. There's also an email address in case you might have a question. On that website, you can actually watch our 12-minute video that we show in the theater. You know, you can just watch it. It's cool. It's free. The other thing on that website is a free mobile app download. And if you download that, um, you can do a complete virtual tour of the site. It will talk to you. It has pictures and it has text. We've been doing it for almost three years with a company. Uh, they've been wonderful. The company's really wonderful. We pay them a monthly amount. And uh, people love it. Now, when you hear it, if you use it, uh, you walk around with it. We have a four-page tour guide map we give you, but you take your phone and you walk around and it has actually more information than the four-page map. Because if your phone dies, the map is a good backup. But again, you can actually watch that from anywhere in the world, no charge. You can uh, see what the site looks like, see if there's something you're interested in seeing coming up to look at. Um, so it's another nice way to see it. Some people can't make it here, you know, where they live, you know, and they can do still tour the site, basically, you know. And... Um, because I enjoy being on your show and I've been on mock show uh, a number of times and uh, people find out about us that way too, which is wonderful, you know? So I, I thank both of you tonight for uh, having us on my family. Thank you too. Yeah. Thank you guys. I, I really enjoyed this. I, I, I got a lot from it. I learned a lot. And uh, Mark, thank you for setting this up. And Dennis, thank you for coming on the show. I really appreciate it guys. We'll have to do it again. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And I, 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 I invite both of you up here and in your audience, you know, and, uh, Thank you. I hope we can get on again. We'll have maybe some new information for you. We're still finding things, as Mark knows. Yeah, yeah. We, we, we need a typical skeptic uh, field trip to uh, America Stonehenge. I think, I think, I think with these phenomena, I don't think we're ever going to find out. You know, like it's like with UFOs. Like, it's like they're coming out with the information, but then there's like a lot of pseudo information coming out. But this is different. You you have actually provable evidence. But like, but what I'm talking about is with our history with UFOs with the yeah. paranormal i don't think we'll ever find the answers right it's it's always a lifelong yeah. search yeah you're yeah you're kind of right we can show you the site um i'm interested in ufos i saw one from this hill looking west uh, a year and a half ago and it was a bright light and i know i flew for thirty thousand hours 42 years and i did a lot of nighttime flying with ups back in the 80s who were a lot of vietnam and korean people and they saw things too it was interesting discussion you know on the plane sometimes you know yeah. But uh, my big my big thing was just actually in my home, and I was watching this bright, bright light south of the Manchester, New Hampshire airport, where I l- learned how to fly back in 74. And this light was so intense, I didn't see any strobe lights, beacon lights, logo lights, nothing other than this bright light. And that can happen with a bright landing light. Sometimes it just, you know, obscures all the other lights. However, this thing was very intense, a little bit more than I was used to, and it went straight to the ground instantaneously. No acceleration, just right to the ground, just like that. And I saw it for a total of about maybe four seconds. And uh, I talked to Kathleen Martin about that. And I asked her, she, the transmedium UFO, space, air, and water. 
have you ever heard of one going into the ground? And she mentioned to me basically that uh, probably Skinwalker Ranch and one other place, but she didn't know about a lot of these. She heard of the other ones. So uh, if anybody out there has seen anything like that, where the thing just, it was south of the airports, there's a couple little brooks, the streams, it's in Manchester, New Hampshire, the airports in the, actually in Londonderry, Manchester line, you know, and I flew out of there for, you know, decades. I know what the landscape looks like. And this thing went to the ground instantaneously. <laughs> and it was very, very strange. And Kathleen is the niece of Betty Hill. And Betty Hill came here in 1974 to meet Hans Holter and one of his psychics and became a lifelong friend of my mom's. And just a couple of years ago, we had Travis Walton up here from the uh, Fire in the Sky. That's amazing. Yeah, we've had a lot of cool people here, you know, in 1970. I've heard you had H.P. Lovecraft up there, too. HP yeah, Lovecraft. that's a thing. Yeah, I think they pinned that down to, uh, gee whiz, I actually, my dad was born in 29. I, I'm trying to remember. I was trying to relate the date to that. But he was with a guy named um, H. Munn, I think, or out of Providence or something. And there's a whole book booklet. That's not real. I'm kind of interested, but I, that's in my, my expert area. I try to remember the details because I know people real H. P. They have a uh, Lovecraft Festival in Massachusetts, you know. Yeah. And there was a there was actually a uh, a booklet written about Horror on the Hill, all about H. P. Lovecraft's visit here. And we used to sell that here back in the 90s. It was published in 88, so through the 90s. It's out of print now, but people, a lot of people bought them, you know, so H.P. Lovecraft um, probably came up here and uh, with uh, the guy Munn, and I think they're two wives, and the gentleman that did the research on this has a lot of details, so it's very, I think it happened, you know, uh, wish we had photographs of it, though, <laughs> but, yeah. but uh, actually, 1970, The In Search, uh, The Unexplained was on NBC, and it was Rod Serling that did a show on us along with Occupy Flock, you know, and that was the first time our place really made the national, you know, national TV thing, you know, and then the next thing was Lennon Nimoy that did us, and while um, William Shatner did us about 12 years ago on Weird or What, so wow. they've invited us back, they've invited us back, uh, I talked to the senior producer, he called me a couple times, and then he moved over to their movie division, they do Ancient Aliens too, uh, but they may still want to do us if he has a fourth seat, uh, It'd be kind of cool to be on his show again, you know. It was Heck cool. yeah, he's a legend. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah, it's enjoyable. It's interesting, and people find out more about these places. You know, they need yeah. to be protected too, as Mark knows. He cites some of these are being vandal vandalized as well as bulldozed. You know, so we're trying to protect them as much. That's as happening possible. all over the world. It's happening over in yeah. um, Iraq with the ancient sites over there, where the you know where Babylon was and stuff like that. Like it's being some of it's intentional. Yeah, some of it's malicious. You know, and some of it's just they're just building and they don't realize what they're doing, but. Some of it is done intentionally too, you know, which is sad, yeah. you know, really sad, you know. So, well, this thank you so a, much. Yeah. I really yeah. enjoyed being on the show this evening, you know. Yeah, thank you guys. This was amazing. I definitely want to do this again. You're a great guest, Dennis. Thank thank you so much. Oh, thank you, Robin. It was nice to meet you too, you know. And like Mike, Mike put a bug in your ear about coming up here, you know, and do a little thing up here sometime. Maybe you guys connect connect and drive up here or whatever. That'd be kind of cool, you know. Oh, whatever, that would be you know. Awesome. Just you know, we're open to it. Definitely open to it. I'd love to show you Mark around again and show Mark some of the new things uh, that we've been talking about for years and show you everything awesome. <laughs> that we know. About. <laughs> it, it, yeah. it's, it's, it's worth heading up up to New uh, Hampshire for this. Yeah. It's, well, you're um, both invited. I'll hold you to it. <laughs> well, you we'll, we'll do this again sometime. Absolutely. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much. Thank you, Mark, right. and thank you, Robert. All right. Thanks, Thanks. everyone.